Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. This morning, I want to share a few facts with you. These, everything that I'm about to share with you is absolutely true. I'm not going to make any of this up, and you can verify me. You can check my work on all of this. But in the year that the King James Bible was commissioned and translation work began on it, William Shakespeare turned 46 years old. Let's keep that number in mind, 46. Because we're going to look at Psalm 46 today. But if you were to go to the King James Bible and count for the 46th word in Psalm 46 in the King James Bible. Do you know what word you would find? The word shake. Now, now, this may seem like just a couple coincidences, but listen, if you were to then take that same King James Bible and start at the bottom of the psalm and start counting backwards 46 words, do you know what word you would find? Spear. So, to summarize, to summarize, in the 46th year of his life, the 46th psalm was translated, and the 46th word from the beginning was shake, and the 46th word from the end is spear. Coincidence? Yes. Yes. All of this is entirely a coincidence. There have been people who theorize that, oh, maybe, maybe William Shakespeare was asked to help translate, and this is how he kind of signed his work, but that is nothing more than a Da Vinci Code level craziness. It is just a coincidence. It's a pretty good one, though, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Our brains as humans are trained to, to perceive and create patterns. And so stuff like this actually happens more commonly than we think. And, and oftentimes it's just fun little things that we notice and we move on from, from them. But sometimes we start to like really get interested in this and really want to know about how Shakespeare was translating the Bible and it leads us down the path to further errors. There's another way that this happens, especially with Psalm 46 for many of us, because Psalm 46 contains one of the most famous verses in the entire of the Psalms. Uh, It contains the phrase, be still and know that I am God. If you were to go to Hobby Lobby or some other home decor store right now, I bet you you could find a wall sign that said, be still and know that I am God. You could find some sort of crocheted, cross-stitched pillow with the message on it, be still and know that I am God. It's a sort of reminder to us that we should stop and slow down and consider what God wants in our lives. And that's, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's helpful. But not really what that verse is about. In fact, as we're going to see in a few minutes, that verse isn't even speaking to God's people, but just tuck that away. We'll get to that later. We'll come back to that. No, as we open this morning, what I want us to see is that all of us have the capacity to be wrong. All of us have the ability to take things the wrong way, to miss what someone or even God is saying. And so that should push us to be humble. It should push us uh, to be humble as we hear and read God's word, to listen again. We always need to let it change us 
instead of presuming and pushing it to say what we want it to say. And so, as we're about to read Psalm 46 in a few moments, I want us to get in the headspace that the people of Israel would have been in when they heard this. This psalm was something that you would read when things went wrong. When the city of Jerusalem was being sieged, this is the psalm that they would read. When natural disasters struck the land, this is the psalm that they would read. And so as you're going into hearing this, I want you to start to think about just for a second, what is it that is causing you to worry today? Maybe it's something big that's happening in the world around us. Maybe it's something with your kids, something in your family. Or maybe it's something you haven't told anyone else about, a a quiet thing that you've kept inside. Whatever that thing is, let's hold that thing in our minds as we hear Psalm 46. So if you're able, would you stand? I'm going to read Psalm 146, uh, or I'm sorry, Psalm 46 to us, and the words will be on the screen behind me. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us and God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So this poem begins with with its big idea. The idea that goes throughout the whole psalm is that God is our refuge. He says it in several different ways, the psalmist does, uh, and it reminds us again and again that no matter what is happening around us, God is our refuge and strength. He is very present, especially in the times of our struggles and trials. And the psalmist further explains the confidence we have because of what God is doing, how God is at work in us. And so he lists some examples of the things that could make us afraid, the things that we're tempted to fear. And he starts talking about mountains and he starts talking about seas. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've attended to church a lot, you might hear this uh, and go, yeah, 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 that's just, that's what psalmists do. They, they're always talking about the mountains and the seas, and maybe, maybe you're not somebody who goes to church a lot. Uh, as you hear this, it just sounds like the strange kind of way that the Bible talks that just seems odd and foreign. But actually, this was a very specific thing that they were talking about. There's a very specific reason the writers of the Psalms are constantly talking about the mountains and the seas. And the first one, uh, you'll understand pretty well. In the ancient world, the mountains where were the, were, 
The mountains were where the gods lived. Think about the Greek mythology. Where did the Greek gods all live? They lived on Mount Olympus. And in Babylonian mythology, uh, the king of the gods, whose name was Marduk, uh, moved from the mountains when he decided to move to the city. There's a joke about work from home and people moving here to Florida in there somewhere. I'll let you find it later. The mountains were solid, immovable facts of life. Wherever you were in the ancient world, you could look up and see them and see their steady presence. Now that's contrasted by the sea, by the Mediterranean Sea. And you got to think about back in the day, they didn't have a weather app. You couldn't get a surf report on your phone. The best you could do is maybe the sky looks red at night and maybe that's a good thing. That was the closest thing they had to meteorology. And so they had this idea that the sea was full of chaos. It could go from glass flat to a squall in no time flat, and they had no way of knowing when that was going to happen. So when the psalmist says that the seas are a place of chaos and the mountains are a reliable thing. Imagine the most reliable thing you know being thrown into the most chaotic place you can imagine. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Trimper Longman, and here's how he put this. When the psalmist says that the mountains are moved into the sea, what he's saying is that it feels like all hell is breaking loose in the world around them. The psalmist is calling to mind the most disturbing scenario he can imagine in order to show us that even in that scenario, even in the scenario where everything is breaking down around us, God can still be our refuge. When we think about the things that keep us up at night, the sources of our worry and fear, the things that distract us during the day, whatever those things are, are, the psalmist says that even the worst-case version of those things, God is there. He is not just present with us, but what does the psalm say? He is very present with us. We don't have to fear and we don't have to worry because God is promising that in the greatest upheavals of our life, he is especially present with us. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible, that whenever we see those in distress, whenever we see those who are hurting, God is especially present with him. And so whatever you have going on in your life, we can trust in him. We can take refuge in him because he is present with us. And so the psalmist moves on to the second section, and each one of these sections is set apart from one another. But there's a big change in between each one. And the first big change we see is between verses 3 and 4, because throughout the first three verses, the seas, the waters, have been a source of chaos. This is something to be feared, something that we need to take refuge from. And then in verse 4, the scene shifts. All of a sudden, it's a peaceful river, a babbling brook, you know, the kind of chilly mountain stream where a little doe might stop to take a little sip of water, and there's violin and flute music playing in the background. I know that's maybe a little bit over the top, but that's how jarring this change is. The seas that are foaming and raging are now a peaceful river that brings peace to its people. While the first section describes the panicked and worried state around us, this one is another story. 
a peaceful city where God is. This river that we sort of see is not the source of worry. The waters aren't the source of worry in the second stanza. They're the source of peace. He is present with us in the chaos. And that presence is what makes the city peaceful. It wasn't that Jerusalem was super great. No, it's that God was present there. In fact, this psalm was often read and celebrated in the city of Jerusalem, but they always knew that it was pointing to something more for two reasons. Uh, first of all, Jerusalem's not actually mentioned anywhere here. We find the, the place where God lives, the place where he has his habitation, which is an allusion to the temple to be sure, but Jerusalem or Zion's not mentioned. And the second reason this isn't Jerusalem is there was no river in Jerusalem. In fact, that was one of the great insecurities. When, whenever Jerusalem would be sieged, they didn't have a steady and consistent source of water. And yet God says about this city, this holy city that he is pointing at, that there is a river that makes glad the peoples that runs through it, which reminds us of some other places that we see in the Bible. We see a peaceful river like this at the very beginning. In Genesis 2, in Eden, there is this peaceful river that flows through the garden because God is present there. God is present with his people. And then we see it again in Revelation 22, where there is now a city where there is a river that makes glad the people of God that runs through it, that brings peace. What's the thing that is tying all of this together? God is especially present with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we get to experience now as a foretaste. Now, because of the Holy Spirit, God is present with us. He's in our midst, especially when we gather together as Christians. You know, every week um, when someone gets up and gives announcements here at City Church, they always talk about community. We talk about it every week here at City Church. And the reason for this is we believe that this is something that, that is different than the world around us. Our culture is, is a hyper-individualistic culture. Everything depends on us. We want to know what is best for me. Our culture encourages us to retreat homes where we each have our own queue of shows that's different than your queue of shows that have been curated for me by Netflix and Paramount and Hulu. There's just so many these days. But no, we all are pushed out from one another. But the Bible says when Christians gather together, there is a unique and holy way that God works. Even in lunches after church, even in playing with another family at the park, God has designed us to experience him in a unique way that we simply cannot do on our own. By the way, that's why the repeated verse in this chapter reads the way it does. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's not that the Lord is with me and he is my fortress. This is collective. He is with us. He is our fortress. This is a team sport. Our worry and anxiety over the nation's raging and the kingdom's tottering makes us want to naturally hide and isolate. But this psalm invites us to live with one another, especially in the times where we feel like everything is going wrong. As Floridians, 
we actually intuitively understand this. If you've lived in Florida for about five years, you have probably experienced uh, the the awkward goodness that is a Florida hurricane party. What happens when a hurricane is barreling down on us? We typically find some friends and gather up at one house or the other. And we're probably thinking that there's going to be a power outage. Uh, and so the stuff in the fridge has got to get eaten. So let's pull out the steaks. We're not going to have them later. Let's cook those up. Let's drink all the drinks that we have so that the, when the power goes out, we don't have to worry about them. And what happens is, as we all gather together, as we have a celebration while the world around us is going literally crazy with winds and rain, there is a strange sense at a hurricane party of peace because we're together, because we're being joyful in the face of hardship. And so that is exactly the kind of thing that this psalm is inviting us into, not just for, for literal hurricanes, but for any of the chaos in our lives. Let's see what God does when we get together and watch him work. And so the poem changes scenes one more time. The last stanza uh, that starts in verse 8 shifts again. We had the shift from the chaotic waters to the stream, and now we have God issuing an invitation to those who are outside of Israel, those who are outside of God's people. He's saying that we need to um, come and see what God is doing. He's calling the people of the nations around to come and see what he is doing. Take a look at what he is up to. And when he does, when the people come and look, you might expect God to show them a serene picture. Maybe something like that babbling brook we got in the last stanza, but that isn't what he has the people look at. When he invites them to come and see, he points to the ways that he has destroyed all of the evil powers that have opposed him through history. It's it's just a touch dark. This is, some people think that this is uh, God asking the people to be reminded of what happened to the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, where God completely decimated the entire army in one morning. But there are so many other ways that God has done this over and over again as well. Think about Gideon's destruction of the Philistines, or maybe Joshua conquering Jericho. The list goes on and on. The Lord makes wars to cease. And he does that in a very specific way. The psalm says that he is going to destroy every weapon of violence, war, and rebellion. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. Every chariot will be burned with fire. And it's interesting because this is so similar to the language that the prophet Isaiah picks up about this same thing. Isaiah says in chapter 2 that every sword will be beaten into a plow, that every spear will be turned into a pruning hook for, for gathering grapes and olives. And this is exactly what God intends to do. God makes wars cease by destroying the weapons of war. And this is where we are headed in the kingdom of God. There will be a day where every gun is melted down and turned into a rake, where every tank is going to be disarmed and repurposed into a garden 
tractor. God's future, God's kingdom is a place where the weapons of war, violence, and rebellion are completely gone. And we even pray for that whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he says to these nations, this is what is going to happen. I am going to destroy every weapon of war. I am going to make war a thing of the past. Come and see. Look what I am doing. And then, in the context of God telling these nations to look at the ways that he is going to make war cease, that's where we get the idea of be still and know that I am God. This is not a serene, think happy thoughts about God and recenter yourself on him. This is a cease and desist letter from the God of the universe that he is going to destroy all those people who would oppose him and his image bearers with violence. God will be exalted among the nations. God will be exalted in all the earth and no power here on earth, whether a natural disaster or any sort of political or military unit can change that. The nations need to take a seat. They need to slow their roll because they are going to submit to God, whether it's now or later, but sure as the sun's rising, it is going to happen. And so the psalmist invites us to remember in this that God is present with us. The God who makes wars to cease. The God who can throw the mountains into the sea if he so troubles. And especially in those moments where we don't know what to do, where we feel like we are swimming beyond our depth, where we are gasping for air, that's when he calls us the most to take refuge in him. We can rest, rest in him. And so while this psalm was used to celebrate celebrate Jerusalem, it's so much more Because the focus of this psalm isn't on some incredible city. This isn't an advertisement from the Jerusalem Tourism Board. Rather, it's pointing us to the gods whose presence makes the city safe. It wasn't the fact that the temple was in Jerusalem that Jerusalem was safe. It was the God who was worshipped in that temple who did. It's the presence of God, not some building that is our refuge. And that presence for us as Christians, comes through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, some of his last words before he ascended into heaven to his disciples in Matthew 28 is, Behold, I am with you. My presence is with you, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus was abandoned and forsaken. He had the weapons of war and violence used against him because at the end of the day, crucifixion was a tool of the Roman Empire to subdue other nations. He was cast out of the city so that we might be brought into the city where God is present. He died outside the city forsaken and alone so that we could be made part of a new family, an uncommon family made up of people around the world who trust in him. And this family is knit together by our shared faith. We can encourage one another to take comfort in him, to take refuge in him. Beloved, one of the ways that God is our very present help in the midst of these hard moments is through one another is through our connection and community to one another, through our Christian friendships. 
So let's love one another because we don't know what the sea that is raging in one another's heart is. So let's show the sort of love that Christ has shown to us, the sort of love that self-sacrificially laid down his life for others. Let's point one another to the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel, and let's look forward to the day when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we confess that when the world is raging around us, when there are so many things that are out of our control, we struggle. God, I confess that I struggle to trust you in those moments. I am quicker to to doubt and to worry than to rest and take refuge. Jesus, thank you that your forgiveness even extends to that. Would you strengthen our souls? Would you help us to see you more and more clearly? And would you bring your kingdom to this earth as it is in heaven? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.